0: Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus increment 254. And this is the first message of February, February 1st, I believe. And as promised, we are going to entertain the Galatian connection. But first of all, as we always do, we entrust our spirit to the Lord, commit our souls to our faithful Creator, present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice which is our reasonable service, and give our hearts to the Lord that we may be taught by him. I think you'll find that one in Proverbs 25. But So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you'll allow us to maximize it in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If we were to give this one a title, and we will, I'd call it The Tale of Two Covenants, but we are going to begin with the Galatian connection. There's fair play to go to Galatians in comparison with Hebrews. There's a lot that Galatians deals with that Hebrews doesn't. There's a lot that Hebrews deals with that Galatians doesn't. It's a different audience, written at a different time, different perspective, different authors, one is apostolic, the other is pastoral, a lot of differences, but here there is a fair play connection between Galatians and Hebrews. And we're dealing with, in the last, two increments ago, we dealt with the fault of the Old Covenant and how it was connected with the weakness of the flesh, and this time we'll take up that thought in a different way. Today, also, our message is called duo diatheke, two covenants, and it's taken not from Hebrews but from Galatians 4.24. You'll notice the Greek phrase next to the increment, 2.54, is duo diatheke. A couple of increments ago, we dealt with deuteros, the second covenant. This time, we're dealing similarly with two covenants. The Galatian connection, we're going to begin with Galatians 3.19. You can jump in anywhere in Galatians and the water's fine, but we've got to jump in right here in Galatians 3.19 to make our point. And it begins with its own pertinent question. We asked the question two increments ago. Whose fault is it? The laws or the, New Test- the Old Testament Community, the Old Covenant community, this time Paul asked the question, so then, why the law why and why did the law even come he 's talking about this wonderful promise made to Abraham, and this promise would be realized in abraham 's seed, and the seed is not many but one it 's christ it 's realized in Christ. And that the innumerable company of people, and that means all humanity, will in, in one day be summed up in Christ. So then Paul says, so why the law have to come in? Why did the law have to intrude? And he's talking here about the legal power of Torah. He answers it immediately and then expands his answer. He said it was a temporary prosthesis because of transgressions until the coming of the seed. To whom the promise was made? To whom did God make this promise? To Abra- made to Abraham, but to whom ultimately did the promise was the promise made to Abraham's seed? And we know from Galatians three sixteen in a marvelous insight by Paul that the seed is one. Christ Himself is the seed. The promise is made to Abraham's seed, Christ. And basically, God said, I will sum up all humanity in you, the seed of Abraham. I will sum up all creation in you, the, new, the son of God. And so, it was a temporary prosthesis because of transgressions until the coming of the seed to whom the promise was made. It, Paul goes on to say, the law was ordered through angels. Angels by the hand of a mediator. We're already beginning to see some weaknesses here by angelic mediation and the mediation of a sinful man named Moses, not the God-man named Jesus. And then in verse 20, he says, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. The point he's making is that God not only makes the covenant, but fulfills the covenant. The one God does it all. He's talking about unilateral covenant here. God is one seems to imply, therefore, that the new covenant does not have a mediator as the old one does. It seems to imply that, again, it doesn't. the new covenant doesn't have a mediator as the old one does. But such is not the case the new covenant has a mediator, but he is included in the identity of the one God, Jesus Christ. He is in being and essence and name and act, God, but he is the God-man, fully divine and fully human, a two-natural, rational, volitional subject, a single, singular person. The mediator of the old covenant is the man, Moses. The mediator of the new covenant is the God-man, Christ Jesus. God is one. God, therefore, is the one who makes the covenant and the one who fulfills the covenant because Jesus is God as well as man. The mediator between God and man is the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So let me say that again. The mediator of the Old Covenant is the man, Moses, mere man. The mediator of the New Covenant is the God-man, Christ Jesus, who is also in an extreme generality, which we call universality, the mediator between God and humanity as a whole, as one person, who is both God and man, both divine and human. Therefore, the covenant that God promises to make with Israel and Judah is, by extension, a covenant he makes with all of humankind. And they will all know me from the least to the greatest, he says in Jeremiah. Let me repeat. The mediator of the new covenant is the God-man, Christ Jesus, who is also in an extremely general, which we would say universal way, the mediator between God and humanity as one person who is both God and man, both divine and human, the divine human, the God-man. So I ask this question, is Jesus a human being? Yes. Is Jesus a divine being? Yes. Is he God? Yes and yes, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The being of God is the Lord the Father, the Lord the Son, the Lord Jesus, and the Lord the Spirit. Paul goes on with a query followed immediately again by an answer. He's using the Q&A technique here very effectively. Verse 21, is the law and he's speaking of the law with its forensic or legal voice, is the law against the promise. The law with its forensic voice against the promise spoken by the voice of God as scripture, back in Galatians 3, eight. And what he's saying here is, can the law commanded by angels through Moses successfully barricade the promise of God made to Abraham regarding all nations being blessed in his seed, or all humanity being justified in Christ. Is the law effectively against that? Can the law be a barricade to that? Paul says, of course not. For if a law had been given that had the power to give life, then righteousness, and this means the saving act of God, We could even say it that way, then the saving act of God would be by the law. But instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin, precisely so that the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, please notice that translation, would be given to those who believe. Now, there's a place of, that's a place, a sticking point. And I was stuck on that point for several months, years ago, as I studied Galatians, especially under Lewis Martin, J. Lewis Martin, who had an excellent commentary on Galatians, which I recommend, and an excellent translation of it, which I recommend. It's pretty good. I'd give it a 9 out of 10. No, I'd probably give it an 8.5 out of 10. It was very good. Instead, the scripture has imprisoned... This sounds a lot like Romans 11.32. God has imprisoned all in unbelief and disobedience, which is the same as sin, in order to have what? Mercy on all. Romans 11.32. No wonder that occasioned a great doxology in 33 to 36. So let's look at this verse again. Instead... The scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin precisely so that the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ would be given to those who believe. And this is where we're going to have to enter into that whole idea of the being saved and the perishing again. And I want to reiterate perhaps the paragraph I gave two increments ago, increment 252. So, here's my comment so far on taking off from 322. Not only is the law incapable of giving life, it only deals in death. It's a death-dealing entity. That's why Paul called it a ministry of death in Second Corinthians. He wasn't kidding. A ministry of condemnation. He wasn't kidding. A ministry of the letter of the law. He wasn't kidding. It involves death because it has been hijacked by the power called capital S-I-N, sin, also known as capital F-L-E-S, flesh, which is hand in hand with the principality called death. When Paul speaks of the old antiquated covenant, he speaks in terms of death and not life. Read 2 Corinthians 3 again sometime. For the law cannot give life, nor can it give righteousness or produce righteousness or rectitude, nor can it be in any way a saving act. Only the spirit of life gives life, and Christ is a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15:45. The new covenant "...has with it a ministry of the Spirit and of life and of righteousness. Because by the righteous act, dikaioma, of the one Jesus Christ, the righteous one, all were justified and given life." Romans 5.18 doesn't just say all were given life or all were justified. It says all are given life and justification. All are made alive... All are justified, all are given what? Life and righteousness. We have a ministry of life and righteousness, not death and condemnation. Because we have this ministry, we don't faint, we don't lose heart. We don't cave into the cosmos, and we don't cave in to the rigors and the adversities of the Agona. Second Corinthians four one. That's another time we're going to have to weave in a whole study of 2 Cor or 2 Corinthians. I can see that now, and I've been seeing that for some time. And so, once again, the new covenant has with it a ministry of the Spirit and of life and of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 3 6 to 13, etc. Because by the righteous act of one Jesus Christ, the righteous one, all were justified and given life. And by his act of obedience, which took him all the way through the death of the cross, all were constituted as righteous or made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Those who were once condemned... Due to the unrighteous act of the first man, Adam, and those who were once constituted as sin or sinners through his single act of sin. Paul's language about the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3 is the language of life, of righteousness, and of the spirit. While he uses the words death, condemnation, and the latter. When speaking of the old covenant. It's a great contrast there. He also speaks of a fading glory on the masked face of Moses. Moses was under a mask mandate. He wore a mask every time he appeared before the people. Why? Because God told him to. Because God did not want his people looking at a fading glory. He wanted his people ultimately to be looking at the face of Jesus Christ with the unfading glory that emanated from it and from him. So Paul also speaks in 2 Corinthians 3 in a very intricate passage and complex passage of a fading glory on the masked face of Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, and contrasts it with the unfading glory that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, the life-giving mediator of the new covenant, not of the letter, but, not of the, but of the spirit, rather, in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Notice again, new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, not of our sufficiency or our competency, but of God. Then he puts the masks He takes the mask not only away from Moses when Moses turns to the Lord, but he takes the mask off the whole New Covenant community when he says, we all with unmasked faces behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord and are transformed from one degree, one increment of glory to the next by that same Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit." Here in Galatians 3.22, Paul seems to say that the promise of the Holy Spirit is given on the condition of believing. See it? Instead, the scriptures imprisoned everything under the power of sin, precisely so the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ would be given to those who believe. Again, Paul seems to say that the promise of the Holy Spirit is given on the condition of of our believing but that is not the case the first epistle to timothy clarifies the matter there paul writes that god our savior is the savior of all people especially those who believe the same must be true of the gift of the holy spirit the lord the spirit which is equivalent to salvation God spoke in the prophet Joel to prophesy of the spirit being poured out on all flesh. I've mentioned that in 2.52. I'm mentioning it again in Joel, Joel 2.28. Not just on those who believe, on all flesh. He pours out his spirit on all flesh. His spirit is a spirit of faith who evokes faith. We having the same spirit of faith, 2 Corinthians 413, from Psalm 116, I believe, verse 15. Even the covenant that God had established with Noah and with his seed after him and signified it by the rainbow sign was a covenant made with pasasarx. Pasasarx, All flesh including the flesh he said of birds and livestock and all wildlife of the earth we've said many times before that god's covenant will involve ultimately christ comprising all of creaturely reality that includes all of mankind all animals wild animals livestock birds every all of created reality all flesh Genesis nine ten to 12, because the spirit of truth, the Lord, the spirit, convicts or persuades the world of sin, and that is specifically its unbelief in Jesus Christ, of sin because they don't believe in me, Jesus said. And so because the Spirit of Truth convicts or persuades the world of sin, John sixteen seven to nine, it's unbelief in Jesus Christ, the implication is that when the Spirit, the Lord the Spirit, is poured out on the world, all flesh, he evokes faith in the world. As first Timothy three sixteen says The one who was manifested in the flesh, Jesus Christ, was believed on in the world. Or we could even say, believed on by the world. When we're all in glory together, when we will have all come to the unity of the faith, we will look back and say, hey, the whole world believed in him. Because the spirit was poured out on all flesh. And the spirit is the spirit of faith who evokes faith. But that doesn't mean that we're justified by faith. We're justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But those who are the believing experience, even now, the being saved. So let's continue with 323, and this will, I think, clarify even more as we go. Now, before this faithfulness came, what faithfulness? The faithfulness of the Son of God, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the faithfulness of the Son of God. Galatians 3.20, make that 2.20. Galatians 2.20, the life I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. It's also a life I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God. Before this faithfulness, what faithfulness? The faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Before this faithfulness came, when did the faithfulness of Jesus Christ came? When Christ came. Christ and faith here are one entity, as we'll see. Now, before this faithfulness came, we were held in custody under the law imprisoned until the apocalypse of the coming faithfulness, my translation, until the apocalypse of the coming faithfulness, or the revelation of Jesus Christ is what he's talking about. The law then, verse 24, was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we could be justified by faithfulness, meaning Jesus Christ's faithfulness. But now that faith, i.e. Christ, he equates that faith with Christ himself, has come, we are no longer under the power of that disciplinarian. The disciplinarian got fired by Abba, Father. You're fired, he said. And now we're just under Abba, Abba the Father, And the Spirit in us cries out, Abba. Notice that in Galatians 3.23 and 3.25, there is a correspondence of the faithfulness that came, Galatians 3.23, with Christ who came in 3.25. And that the apocalypse or revelation or unveiling of the coming faithfulness in 3.23 is equivalent with Christ who has come. Now Douglas Campbell in his book entitled The Quest for Paul's Gospel was certainly on the right track when he wrote rather pithily quote in Galatians 3:15 to 29 God simply seems to act in order to free a humanity that is fundamentally helpless I'm going to say that again because I think that's pretty good I think he's right on the right track there Douglas Campbell in his book called The Quest for Paul's Gospel said wrote quote in Galatians 3:15 to 29 God seems simply seems to act in order to free a humanity that is fundamentally helpless Divine initiative he says is mandatory and salvation is inconceivable without it Mr. Campbell, are you saying that God helps the helpless and not he that helps himself? I think he is. And I think Doug Campbell is right. Paul is consistent through Galatians and throughout Romans, for that matter, that the sole, S-O-L-E, justifying factor is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Galatians 3.22 should be translated as to sense. Two things to make a, a translation clear and precise. Two things. One, I'm going to do it as to sense. Nehemiah 8.8. Secondly, with the aid of 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. You know why 1 Timothy was written, 2 Timothy was written, Titus was written? Among other things, those three epistles were written called pastorals. And much of their content, even after Paul's death, even though his name was attached to some of them, they were written to clarify certain questions and dilemmas that came up in Paul's church epistles, because Paul just dictated things off the cuff, as it were, to deal with crises. And therefore, even Peter said in Second Peter, in Paul, there's a lot of things that are hard to understand. He said, I can't even understand them. They're hard to understand. But all you can do is grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus do a wonderful service for us in that they clarify issues that came up in those hard things that Paul said where it seems there's contradictions. We just dealt with one of them in Galatians 3.22. Is he saying there that only those who believe are saved? No, he's not. And that's why I bring in First Timothy 2, 3, and 4. So to translate Galatians 3.22 as to sense, with the aid of First Timothy 2, 3, and 4, I don't translate it this way. But instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin precisely so that the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ would be given precisely or exclusively to those who believe. That's the sense that most people have. But rather, the sense that, as to sense that I'm giving it with the help of First Timothy 2, 3, and 4, I would translate it this way. But instead... The scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin precisely so that the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ would be given especially to those who believe. Not exclusively. That's exactly what 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 say later on. Clarifying something that quite genuinely is a problem. I had a problem with that verse. And that's why I I thank God every day, and I wouldn't mind teaching these if I had time. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, because among other reasons, they were written to clarify certain dilemmas and difficult things in Paul that would otherwise be really almost unanswerable and unanswered. We're also well advised to turn our attention to Romans 11.32 here, where even this reservation... Indicated by the word "especially" is removed. Romans eleven thirty two even wipes out the reservation term "especially those who believed." There we are told unequivocally that God shows mercy to all. Period over and out. Moreover, the mercy that God shows to all, according to Titus three five, is the mercy according to which God saved us. So when it says God shows mercy to all, it means he shows mercy that saves to all. Saving mercy to all. It says God saves everybody by mercy. He he helps the helpless in that way. God gives his saving mercy to all. He saves all of humanity by his unimaginable mercy. And he justifies all by grace. Romans 3.23, usually quoted in the so-called Romans road. all sinned and come short of the glory of God. They fail to recognize that that goes on in 24, being justified. Who's justified? All who sinned, being justified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, justified by grace, as Titus 3.7 further clarifies, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He justifies all by grace, Romans three twenty three to twenty four, Romans four twenty five, Romans five eighteen, Titus three seven. So notice also that the Holy Spirit is said to accomplish salvation as he who is quote poured out generously causing salvific restoration and effecting the saving regeneration of all, Titus 3, 5, and 6. Let's continue in Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all the sons of God. The sons of God, according to Hosea 1.10 or 2.1, depending on the translation, is an eschatological term for Israel, the sons of God. For in Christ Jesus you are all the sons of God through the aforementioned faith, meaning the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For as many as are baptized into Christ, and I contend that that baptism is not water baptism but by the Holy Spirit because of 1 Corinthians 12.13. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, the baptism he talks about is the baptism of the Holy Spirit which places us into Christ and eradicates the antinomies there or the antonyms of Jew versus Gentile, of slave versus free, of Jew versus Greek or whatever the, the distinctions are. It eradicates the baptism, not water, but spirit baptism eradicates those antinomies. So the same thing is true here, and it should be, therefore, that baptism is the Spirit's baptism. So I would say, again, in verse 27, For as many as are baptized into Christ, meaning by the Holy Spirit, as in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, have put on Christ and duo here is also used in 424 of Ephesians for putting on the new man Colossians 310 for putting on the new man Romans 1314 for putting on the Lord Jesus Christ as many as are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit have put on Christ that is your identity is in Christ now you want to find your identity it's in Christ There is no Jew or Greek. That means our identity is not determined by our ethnicity. Nor is there either slave nor free. Our identity is not determined by our social, cultural, or political classification. Or male and female. How about that one? No male or female. Our identity is not determined by our gender. You are all one in Christ Jesus, meaning our identity is determined by our being in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, that's what it says literally, And if you are Christ, that means you are part of the whole Christ, body and head. You happen to be members in particular of his body and not the head. And if you are Christ, that means together with each other and with Christ the head, the whole Christ then you are the seed of Abraham. That's Christ. Who is the seed of Abraham? Christ, singular, in Galatians 3.16. You are the whole Christ, together with the head and all the members of the body. And so that's a profound thing here in verse 29 that I didn't see until yesterday. And if you are Christ, and by yesterday I mean January 22nd, because I'm recording this on January 23rd, and if you are Christ, that means together with each other and with Christ the head, the whole Christ, then you are the seed, capital S, of Abraham. That is, Christ, heirs according to the promise. And that means the promise to Abraham and to his seed and not the law. What's the promise to Abraham into his seed? That all the nations will be blessed. In him, the seed. Who's all the nations? All people for all time. Who's the seed? Christ. All humanity in Christ. Blessed. So it's more than interesting, speaking of the Galatian connection, that in chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul presents an extensive allegory regarding what? The two covenants. In Galatians 4.24, he says, and I'm not going to read all these verses. I'm just going to allude to this whole passage, which really takes up all of Galatians 4.21 to 31, that allegory. Worth studying. In Galatians 4.24, he says that the two women, Hagar and Sarah. Now, there were some false teachers sent from the present Jerusalem to the churches in Galatia, and they started some trouble. They disturbed them, disturbed the people there. They knocked them off from the track of Paul's grace. They caused them to fall from grace, as Paul said very starkly in Galatians 5, 4 to 6. They came from what? The present Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is now, apostate Jerusalem, sent from there. Now, when Paul did this allegory of Hagar and Sarah, I'm sure they were saying, oh, oh, that's us, we're Sarah. And Paul said, nope, you're Hagar. You're Hagar. You're Mount Sinai in Arabia. You're the present Jerusalem who has children and makes them slaves. She's a slave woman and so is everyone she gives birth to. You are the false teachers. You're of Hagar. You're of Mount Sinai. You're of the present Jerusalem, and the present Jerusalem is what? Identified with this present evil age. There's a lot more to Galatians than meets the eye and meets the pen. There's a lot more to it. So I'm just doing doing the broad brush of this now. Galatians, it makes me tempted to do this someday uh, in earnest. But in Galatians 4.24, he says that the two women, Hagar and Sarah, represent what? Two covenants. Duo diatheke. That's the Greek phrase you'll find in our increment title above. Duo diatheke. One from Mount Sinai, obviously the old covenant, bearing children into slavery. Hagar is also associated with Mount Sinai in Arabia, if you read that passage on your own, and in turn with the present Jerusalem, Galatians 4.25, from which certain teachers have come to Galatia to oppose Paul and his gospel. What's Paul saying here? He's saying like what he said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship, contrary to theirs, is in the heavens, the heavenly Jerusalem, from whence we expect to deliver Jesus Christ, etc. He said, "There's what the implication is here. They came from the present Jerusalem. John is a little more acerbic and a little more acidic in his satire by calling the mystery Babylon, the whore of whores, Jerusalem, in Revelation." Paul's saying these guys came down from the present Jerusalem that is identified with the present evil aeon, implying that he had come and been commissioned from the heavenly Jerusalem and came from future world, as it were, where Jesus receives the worship of all the angels. So Hagar is associated with Mount Sinai, Two mountains, just like in Hebrews, you didn't come to Mount Sinai, says Hebrews, you came to Mount Zion, the heavenly one, two mountains in Galatians, two mountains in Hebrews, two mountains in Revelation, two mountains everywhere, Sinai and the heavenly Zion. Hagar is associated with Mount Sinai in Arabia, and in turn with the present Jerusalem Sarah, on the other hand, represents the new covenant and the above Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem in Hebrews 12.20, the above Jerusalem in Galatians 4.26. Paul says that Jerusalem is free, not a slave woman, and she is our mother. So we are children of the free woman. The above Jerusalem where Paul elsewhere declares our citizenship, in Philippians 3:20 from which he effectively received his commission to preach the gospel bears children into freedom whereas the present Jerusalem the below Jerusalem what did Jesus say to the leaders in Jerusalem I'm from above you are from below I am from the above Jerusalem, you are from the below Jerusalem, and I'm going to tell you about that Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to vanish with the vanishing old covenant. And you shall seek me. You shall come to this old Jerusalem below and seek me. I am Yahweh. You will seek me in those old feasts and festivals, denying and neglecting my finished work and you will die on account of your sin right in that city. That's what John eight twenty one to 24 means. So the present Jerusalem, the below Jerusalem, was where the false teachers were commissioned and sent to trouble the Galatian churches founded by Paul, whom they considered to be a renegade. Though we don't have time to develop this allegory thoroughly right now, it's enough to note that Galatians distinguishes the two covenants just as Hebrews does, but by different genres. It's also notable that in Galatians, Paul brings in the distinction of two mountains. He explicitly mentions Mount Sinai in Arabia, while implicitly referring to Mount Zion, which is not only in the present Jerusalem, literally the now Jerusalem in Galatians 4:25. But is identified and is identified with this present evil aeon in Galatians one four. But there is also a heavenly Mount Zion associated with the heavenly city, Jerusalem, in Hebrews twelve twenty two to twenty four. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the Judge of all, the spirits of justified people made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Hebrews 12:22 to 24. Notice those correlations, they're remarkable. And that Mount Zion, associated with the heavenly city Jerusalem, is in turn associated with Jesus and the blood of the new covenant. This heavenly Mount Zion and this heavenly Jerusalem called by Paul the above Jerusalem is associated not with this present evil aeon, nor with the ministry of death, of condemnation, and of the letter in 2 Corinthians 3, but with future world, the aeon to come, which has already come in Jesus and in the spirit and in the new covenant community. It embraces a ministry of life, of righteousness, justification, and the Spirit, namely the Lord the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit. Now a word, first of all, on the pastorals. We've talked about the pastoral point. Now I want to look at the pastoral's connection again. I want to make this point a little bit harder, drive this nail a little bit deeper, because, again, it's of its importance. This time I'll call it the pastorals, plural. That's what 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called, the pastorals connection. Again, our references to 1 Timothy and Titus throughout this series are indications that these epistles, and this is something I've never read or heard of before but have just merely discovered in studying Hebrews, they These, along with 2 Timothy, were designed, evidently, among other reasons, to clarify questions that arose from readings of Paul's church epistles and to consolidate his doctrine, such as is done, for example, in 1 Timothy 3.16 in an encapsulation, 2 Timothy 2.11-14 in another encapsulation, Titus 2, 11 to 15, another encapsulation. And in a fourth encapsulation, Titus 3, 4 to 7. In any case, what we have in Galatians three nineteen to 25, and then on through 29, reveals in correlation with Hebrews 8, 7 and 8, the fault or the flaw of of the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant made on Mount Sinai. The old or Sinaitic covenant, on the one hand, did not nullify the Abrahamic promise by which an innumerable company of people, that is, all people, would be blessed. On the other end, the old covenant was supplanted by the new or replaced, we could even say, by the new, being careful of that word replace or replacement. The older Sinaitic covenant, on the one hand, then did not nullify the Abrahamic promise by which an innumerable company of people, that is all people, would be blessed in Christ. On the other end, the old covenant was supplanted as the scripture predicted in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, by a new and flawless, faultless covenant One which the Hebrews author calls new, better, and everlasting. A covenant enacted with better promises, mediated by Jesus and confirmed by his blood, which speaks of better things than that of Abel. Now I was going to reiterate here a word on the being saved and the perishing, but instead I'll refer you back for that to increment 252, where I indicated that as a separate little section, a word on the being saved and the perishing, and I will close instead with what I call the marital metaphor, question mark. As I mentioned in previous increments, I disregarded them in Hebrews 8, 9. Seems harsh as a translation of Jeremiah 31, 32. The Septuagint is 38.32 of Jeremiah. That can get confusing too, but it it isn't to me now that I've looked at it 100,000 times. Jeremiah 31.32 or the Septuagint Greek translation 38.32 is translated, I disregarded them. Now, again, that seems harsh, but we're talking about a marital metaphor even there, because Israel is portrayed as an adulterous wife who repeats her adulterous affairs constantly, and therefore, if you humanize God, you see him as a husband that therefore just disregards her now. And he would be right to do so. But, of course, we know that God promised in Jeremiah 31 that he was, he had loved her with an everlasting love and would rebuild her again to the status of virgin in Jeremiah 31, 1 to 4. So that is not the ultimate heart of God, but he's using an analogy here. I disregarded them. And at first I began to look at this, the Hebrew text, which says, even though I was married to them. In other words, they didn't, follow my covenant even though I was married to them. Now that sounds good and looks good and may even be good because almost all of Jeremiah is rooted in a marital metaphor where God refers to Israel as his bride, as his wife, first as his betrothed. He finds her as an infant kicking in her blood. He watches her grow up into her teen years. He sees her turn to a prostitute. He, he is faithful to her regardless of all her infidelities. And so there's a marital metaphor on many levels going throughout Jeremiah, so you can almost see why the later Hebrew text, not earlier Hebrew text, said, though I was married to them. In that case, the Hebrew text has been preferred by some Probably, and I can understand why, since almost the entirety of Jeremiah deals with a marital metaphor to describe Yahweh's relationship with Israel. The Tanakh, or the Jewish translation of the Hebrew scriptures, in this case is preferred over the Septuagint by some translations. The Septuagint renders the clause in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-two 32b, I disregarded them. And that's how the Hebrew's author translates it. The Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H, or the Hebrew text reads, though I espoused them, meaning married, but also there's another translation that says, though I advocated for them or took up for them. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, one of my favorite English translations, says even though I had married them. The English Standard Version, ESV, has, though I was their husband. Now, good case for it, maybe. But here's the dialectic, and here's my conclusion on it. Even though I say this, however, that that may be a very good indication, the marital metaphor, I was plagued with the memory of Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, where God swore in his wrath that they would never enter into his rest. Now, that's kind of disregarding them. In, in that sense. What the writer is saying is, I don't want you to be like the old covenant community who didn't enter into God's rest. I don't want you identifying with a vanishing covenant because when something's old and decaying and, and beginning to show the signs of age, it's destined to vanish altogether in Hebrews 8.13. See, we're anticipating that. I don't want you guys to vanish in the flames of A.D. 70 along with that covenant when your universe that's represented in that old stone temple burns up and vanishes into nothingness. I don't want you to be there with it. And so though I like that marital metaphor idea and was intrigued with it for a minute, I'm still plagued with the memory of Hebrews 3, 7 to 11 in which the Lord swears that they will not enter into his rest, meaning the old covenant community. And we can detect a blessing here, however. We can detect a blessing here, even though, however, because the Lord disregards not the people of the old covenant community per se, but the old per se, the old man, the old humanity. The pastoral author of Hebrews is warning his readers that to side with the old covenant over the new is to choose the old humanity over the new humanity, which God disregards the old humanity. He disregards the old man. He disregards the old covenant, and he doesn't want his people identifying with it. And so he wants them to choose the new over the old and choose the new humanity and choose the new and last Adam over the old Adam. To do so, to do otherwise, and that is to choose the old covenant, the old man, the old Adam, the first Adam, is to choose perishing rather than being saved. Speaking in the context of history, Those who would choose the old over the new would likely feel the fate of the vanishing covenant, especially in the historical conflagration of A.D. 70. And A.D. 70 is a truly important trajectory throughout the New Testament. And the vindication of the Son of Man, when the Son of Man was said to be coming with the clouds of the air In Matthew 24, it was not a reference to his final coming, but to his vindication when the old covenant community would indeed be disregarded by the Lord. But even then, they would ultimately be saved, just as the presently perishing will ultimately be saved. So Israel's apostate Jerusalem would also eventually be saved, even though they perished in the A.D. 70 conflagration. How do I know that? Matthew twenty three thirty nine says, even to the residents, in fact, especially and directly to the residents of apostate Jerusalem who were left desolate, quote, I'm telling you, you will surely not see me from now on until you say, blessed is he, who comes in the name of the Lord he was anticipating the time when they would say blessed is he meaning Jesus Christ who comes with the name Yahweh they will recognize Yahweh as every knee bows every tongue acknowledges Jesus to be Yahweh Yahweh to be Jesus there is hope for all there is mercy for all there is salvation for all and that's all for this increment.